Uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning American novelist Richard Ford has just written his last Frank Bascom book. Also, he says, the series began with sports writer in 1986, includes Independence Day, which won a Pulitzer Prize, and now Be Mine, in which Frank, now in his 70s, undertakes a road trip, another road trip, with his son Paul, who's 47 and dying of ALS, a motor neuron disease. The book begins with a chapter entitled Happiness and the words, Lately I've begun to think more than I used to about happiness. This is not an idle consideration at any time in life, but it is a high-dollar bonus topic for me, born 1945, approaching my stipulated biblical allotment. Richard Ford joins us from New Orleans. Hi, Richard. Hi, Kim. Nice to hear your voice. Nice I know to talk the, to you. I know that I know uh, the rugby's going. We uh, can quit until it's over if you'd like to. Yeah. No, it's not looking good, Richard, I'm afraid. Oh, I'm sorry. I know what it means. I, I, I thought the All Blacks never lost to anybody. Did you? Well, you've been um, out of touch for a while then, obviously. <laughs> You didn't. You didn't obviously watch the Twickenham match the other day. Look no, here. That was rude for them. Is sport is sport as divisive in America as it is here? In that we did a brief interview about the rugby at the top of the program, and I've got discontented Radio New Zealand listeners saying, "Oh, you've gone to the dogs. There's too much coverage of sport, and what are you thinking?" Would you get that kind of response from a, you know, public radio station listening audience in America, do you think? Well, in the first place, a public radio station in the United States wouldn't be covering sport. Oh, no. God, you're adding fuel to the fire now. People will be texting and saying, and neither should you. But but no, no, I wouldn't put it that way. I mean, I I mean, there's, you know, we have all these, I'm sure you have it in New Zealand, there's, there's all these networks dedicated to nothing but sports until you want to puke but um but on public radio in the united states it's it's mostly public affairs and sport unfortunately being the sort of toy store of the american mind um doesn't really qualify as a public affair i mean i watch it all the time and you you have to kind of turn your turn your head away from donald trump and watch something else so sports it that um, first sentence I read out from Be Mine. Yes. What's your relationship, Richard, with Frank Bascom? Well, uh, he's not a human being. That's one thing that my relationship <laughs> with him is not. He's a, he's, a, he's, he's a voice that I can make happen on the page and that allows me to say right, if you like, uh, all kinds of things that are both funny and serious at the same time. I mean, he really is for me, and probably a lot of your readers won't exactly affiliate with this. He's an in- he's an instrument. He's an instrumentation for 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 putting words on the page. And I and I don't think of Frank Bascom, although and I and I want the reader to think of him differently from how I do. 
But I don't think of Frank Bascom as a human being or as a person. He's a literary character, and insofar as he's that, he's a fabrication. And but not an alter ego, because, of course, you were a sports no. writer for a while. Although, no. you know, he, he's been divorced twice. You've been married to the same woman for 500 years. He yes, has children. You do not have children. Um, I, there are commonalities. There are He's, he's very... Strangely even tempered. I don't know yeah. whether you are. I get the impression you're not. No, no. I would, I would be happier even at an at an antique age as I am. I'd be a lot happier if I were a little more even tempered. Uh, but I don't. That just that doesn't seem to be my fate. But Frank is. Yeah, Frank is. Because if 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 I make him even tempered, then I have more things I can make him say, more things I can make him think. Do. You've got this. You know, when you're writing novels, what you're doing is you're trying to think of something to say. Yeah. You're trying to think of something to write. It almost doesn't matter what it is, um, although it ought not be boring. But so when I when I make him even tempered in the face of adversity, in the face of death, his son's death, as you said earlier, in the face of illness, in the face of divorce, of all kinds of dystrophic sort of human behavior, then I have things for him to say. And, and that's what I purport to be good at. I was looking back at the sports writer. Um, my name is Frank Bascom. I'm a sports writer. And at the point where the book opens, his first son, Ralphie, has died. Yes. And his marriage has fallen apart. Yes. And he says, things have turned out all right for me. Yeah. At which point I think, is what's going on here? Well, what's going on is he can tell it. And in, in my view, um, first-person narrations of the sort that this is over all of these many books and pages, uh, first-person narrations are a testimony to having survived many of the things that are told in the narrations themselves, all of these adversities. So if he can say after the, you know, all of these events, a son who dies, a divorce, et cetera, he has cancer along the way. If he can say, I'm all right, by God, we'd better believe it. But you also have this word called dreamy. dreamy. Um, his, he was dreamy at the time. Um, right. And it goes on in Be Mine as well. And at one point he says he's worried that Paul is a bit dreamy when he was a kid. Is that another word for melancholic or depressed? Well, um, <laughs> you know, no, it's the precise word for what it is. So <laughs> it doesn't need another word. It's, it's, it's just being afloat, you know, in your life and... And and not being always with feet on the ground, not being always observant of the things going on around you. It's a, it's it's a state that allows you allows you to progress further beyond those adversities that I mentioned before. So it's not necessarily melancholic, though. Every once in a while, it probably is, as in all of our lives. But it's but it's but it's. You know, I, I I I dreamed up that word dreamy because it seemed to comply with all of the ways that I wanted Frank to be existing. So it wasn't just one thing; it wasn't just two things. It was a bunch of things at once. 
It seemed to suggest a certain amount of avoidance or detachment, but but I wondered if that was okay because that's how Frank gets by. Yeah, you know, there's something to be said for just uh, a healthy state of denial when what you're denying are just things that are intolerable. I mean, how long do you have to look at these things? How long do you have to exist in, in these warps? So, yeah, I, there probably is a little bit of denial. And good. Good on him, I say. Yeah, good on him. <laughs> um, <laughs> you knew Frank was going to feature in more than one book when you wrote The Sports Writer, right? No, I did not. Did when you I not? Wrote, no, I thought I was a one-book kind of a guy. That you that you wrote a book and you used up all your resources that that book uh, demanded, and then you went on to some other book that you couldn't even anticipate when you wrote the first one. But when I got around to thinking about writing a subsequent book to the sports writer, I realized that all of the notes that I was writing in my notebook, which is how I compose books, were in Frank what I identified as Frank's voice. And I thought, oh Christ, you're you're not that ambitious a writer. People will just think that you're rewriting the first book. Uh, but after I kept generating notes and generating sentences that were in Frank's voice, I, I thought to myself, dude, come on, you're being given something that you just shouldn't deny. You, you're being given a voice that readers will participate in and that they'll read with pleasure and with edification. And so don't, don't just fly in the face of, of what you're being given. And so I sort of backed into it that way. I'm pretty sure that at the end of Independence Day, you thought that that was it. I did. But, you know, but, but my view is that when you finish a book, you've basically used yourself and certainly all of your materials up. And, and there's, nothing else, there's nothing else one can do. But in a kind of ontological way, if you if you once admit that you could write another book, you can no longer completely contend that you couldn't write a third. <laughs> and even though I didn't think that I could write a third, I, I, I ne- it never thought, it never occurred to me that I couldn't do it if I wanted to, but I just didn't think I would want to. You didn't want to beat John Updike at the game or anything? Oh, John Updike's unbeatable, really. You know, John Updike was a great writer. Really a great writer, and I admired him immensely. Probably, even though my books are not really like his books, and I was able to tell him this in his life, uh, that if he hadn't written these connected books, mine being altogether different, I probably wouldn't have even conceived writing connected books. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of giants, and, and, and he was such a giant. He's fallen out of favor. Do you know why? He's an old, he's an old white guy. We, we've all fallen out of favor, all of, all of us old white guys. I'm not sure whether you've fallen out of favor. I hope not. I hope, I hope I'm the exception to this rule. Although you have said that your work won't stand the test of time, and I'm not sure why you said that or what you meant. Well, I think I probably said I'm not worried about whether my books will stand the test of time. I, any more than anybody else does who writes books, have no idea if my books will stand the test of time. Many things do not that seem absolutely eminent and, and essential at the moment. But I, but I, I mean, I'll be gone, right? So 
whether they do or they don't, I, I, I can't really too much worry about them. What I can worry about is doing the best I can humanly do at the time I have your attention. One of the, um, one of the things that Frank says in the sports writer that I wanted to run past you <laughs> is okay. if sports writing teaches you anything, it is that for your life to be worth anything, you must sooner or later face the possibility of terrible searing regret, which is, of course, what we're all feeling here in New Zealand right at this moment, this terrible searing regret. Um, but what do you mean by that? Well, I just don't think anybody who's living any kind of life at all, and I don't mean to say a brave life or a not brave life, ever is immune to, to wishing she or he had done something different from how he did it. Uh, and, and, you know, has, had, had not, you, you, you never don't get the privilege of thinking to yourself, I've done everything right as much as you might have tried to. And so regret is a possibility in what you have to do, I think. I mean, you know, I guess I'm just talking about me. You, you you have to you have to face regret you have and, and and not let it defeat you and you know that's why at the end of be mine and at the beginning of be mine with his son dying frank has to think about being happy and that's a version i think long many years later of facing down terrible searing regret he has to face down the regret of having been to some extent an inadequate father to his son who is dying yeah I mean, Paul's always been tricky, hasn't he? Yeah. Paul was a wonderful character to write. I will have to say, I don't usually say that about my characters, but for me, Paul was a delight to write um, just because he, he, he absorbed so much of the stuff that I had available for him. He, he pretty much could absorb everything I could put you know, on his plate. And that was, I thought, it was... It was it was rewarding to write him because he's funny and he's serious and he's full of pathos and he's he's obnoxious and he's obstinate. He's he's all those things that human beings are. Why? I mean, this is an obvious question, I suppose, but why are they on this road trip to go and see Mount Rushmore? Uh, well, um Paul has been at the Mayo Clinic, which is the preeminent medical facility in the United States. Frank went there as well, didn't he, for his prostate? Yes, he did. He did right. for his prostate cancer, exactly. And so he takes his son back to be in a to be in a, a, a test group for ALS um, patients. He's not going to be cured, but the test group and what he experiences as a, as a patient there may help others later than later than now to survive. And and when he gets out of his test group. Frank wants to take him on some kind of a victory lap of of sorts. And and he's sort of at his wit's end. You're in the middle of Minnesota. It's the middle of winter in 2020. Where the hell do you go? So here out there on the plains is Mount Rushmore. And it's absurd to go there. It's ridiculous to go there. But that is where Frank's wits allow him to take his son in hopes of somehow pleasing his son. Um so that's why that's why they're doing that. Um, that's just one of those things that you have to, as a novelist, convince yourself you're going to do. Uh, you think to yourself, because I I I probably thought at some point, sort of a question 
like your question, why the hell are they going there? And the and the, and the, the answer to that question is because I made them go there. And I tried to make it seem reasonable and essential and uh, plausible. Even more weirdly, but something <laughs> that gave Paul more pleasure was you made them go to the Corn Palace of South Dakota. Yeah, such a place. What it's is such it? A place. <laughs> I mean, it's just out there on the it's out of, on the prairies of South Dakota in Mitchell, South Dakota, and it's and it's what it is is sort of a civic center. Now it's a civic center. But it's it's completely cladded on the outside in corn, and 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 it has to be seen to be believed. And that was that was for 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 me who and I've been there a few times. It was it was a terrific descriptive problem because there's nothing you can compare it to. And when you're trying to describe something for the reader to envision, it helps to be able to compare it to something else. I think I compared it to the Kremlin, but it's the Kremlin made of corn. And this is real corn. And it's huge. It's an enormous place. You mean bits of corn or ears of corn or corn cobs or the whole damn thing? Corn cobs. Everything. Uh, corn cobs and prairie grass. And, and and they make out of these corn cobs and prairie grass, they color them and and they and they make uh and they make images. They make images of uh the Marines coming ashore at Iwo Jima in, in, in World War II, and they make images of Lawrence Welk in the Champagne Orchestra. And you can't. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. You All I can tell you. You couldn't make it up, as they say, Richard. <laughs> well, you need to. But Paul loves it. Yeah, he loves it. Well, that's the thing, you know, you, you, you say to yourself, all right, I'm going to take them there. That's what I'm going to make my characters do. And then you get them there and you describe the place and you try to make it visible. And then you subject Paul to it and you have to dream up what he's, what the hell he's going to think and what he's going to say. And that's kind of almost the pleasurable part because you, you have a full choice, full array of choices for what Paul could think or say. And and what I decided, rather than having Paul say, "Oh, this is horrible. This is shabby. This is just too, this is just too trite for words," he loves it. And so, so in a way, you're going against type. You're being slightly oppositional to what your standard American would think. A listener is shouting at me in capital letters. You understand? I've been to the Corn Palace. It is oh, truly a sight to behold. Oh, I'm so glad. Is that is that one of your? Uh, New Zealand confrères there who's been yes. there? Yes. Oh, good. That makes me so happy. So I'm not a complete liar. Yeah. I didn't make it so right. It's proven to be correct. Um, <laughs> Frank says, I happen to believe there's plenty to be said for a robust state of denial about yeah. many things, death being high on the agenda. How are you yeah. going on that, the death thing? Well, I guess you never know, do you? You can make all kinds of lavish claims for yourself about how brave you're going to be, and, but you got to get there, I think. And when you're there, you'll know, right? I mean, but I, I don't pray. I don't pray on it, so to say. P R E Y. Um, certainly don't P R A Y. Um, so I'm I'm doing okay at 79. Um, you know, all of my friends have been dropping around me, and one day I'll be one of them. And I, so far, it doesn't freak me out. Have you made preparations? Um, do, do you mean practical preparations? Oh, well, you know, clearing out the stuff that you 
don't want people to find and reckoning oh, where you're going to end up. What? After I'm dead, you find whatever they want. You don't care. <laughs> I've, I've, I've tucked it all the way at Michigan State University. Ah, and well, that's University, good. So, all, so those novels, all those novels that were waiting publication. No, there aren't any, you know. It isn't, it's, it's nice. There aren't any novels that are waiting publication. There haven't been any novels that got written that, didn't, that weren't published. I've been lucky in that way. So there's not going to be a big shower of Richard Ford posthumous publications? Not written by me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, you're back in New Orleans. You've lived in New yes. Orleans before. Um, yes. Christina, your wife, had a job in New Orleans. And you didn't like it. You went away and you lived separately for a while. You seem yes. to have moved all over the show. What's going on? Well, when you grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, as I did, you either think you live in the center of the universe or you want to get out of Dodge. I was one of those kids who wanted to get out of Dodge. And so I went off to college in Michigan where I, thank God, met my wife when we were 17 and 19. And we just we didn't want to have kids. And so we just lived all over everywhere. I mean, ostensibly, because I'm a novelist, uh, I can apparently live anywhere, Christina tells me. And she had a she had a career that she wanted to pursue. She got a PhD in in regional planning, and she was she's been a big deal planner all of her life. And so we just went where her jobs dragged us, uh, and it was all over to California, to Chicago, to Michigan, to Vermont, to New Jersey, back to New Orleans. Yeah, we just lived all over. And, you know, it's 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 a huge continent, and um, I grew up in a little podunk part of it. I kind of wanted to see the rest. But you left New Orleans yes, and went to Paris? Well, I went to Paris, and then I came back from Paris, and I moved. I bought a house in Maine and tried to induce Christina to come up to Maine and live with me. And she did after three years. Um, but she, she had a job that really completely occupied her, and it didn't occupy me. And um, it was about the time I had won the Pulitzer Prize and I had opportunities to go places and I wanted to go to them. And so I said to her, please, 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 please come and go with me. She said, no, this is a job of my lifetime. I'm not going to go with you at all. You just better go by yourself. So I did. And now you're back in New Orleans. And do you love it? (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's what I thought it would be. And I like it, but I'm, I'm just, a, I've just been a man all my life, even before I was a man, who was always sort of looking at the horizon, sort of longingly. So now that we're back and we own a house and we're living there, neither of us is working a, a paying job. Um, it, 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 it's, I don't know if it's New Orleans or if it's just being 79 and wanting to squeeze life as hard as I can. I feel like I need to squeeze it a little harder than I'm squeezing it right now, but that's okay. That's 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 normal. We, we, we're giving ourselves uh, two years, and if we don't like it enough to stay in two years, we'll pick up and go somewhere else. Crikey, most people, if you'll excuse me for saying so at your age, have settled down a bit. <laughs> no, I said to my friend here in Mississippi, where I've been the last couple of days, I said, do people move at 80? I don't know, but maybe you do. In between Maine... And yeah. New Orleans. Did you live in a place called Billings? Uh, we have a house in Billings right now. But what is Billings? Billings is an old railroad oil town um, in, in the south central part of Montana, quite near the Wyoming border. If you've 
if you if if you've seen this these cowboy things on Netflix, uh, that's right where all of that takes place. Um, and um, it's it's a big old gross kind of you know city set in a beautiful landscape, which they're very quickly devaluing and, and metastasizing out into the out into the prairie. Uh, but we lived there. We lived there because we found a house that we liked. We didn't know a soul there, and we go we go pheasant shooting there. And I and with a, with a pal of mine, we lease a, a ranch nearby there where we go pheasant and grouse shooting. And that's why we live there. Oh, yeah. For no other reason, you found a house you liked, and there were pheasants nearby, so you thought, "Let's do this." That's exactly right. Good grief! It's exactly. I know it's crazy, isn't it? But again, we don't have kids. And uh, Christina had, had basically quit working for other people. Oh, she writes books yet. And I was writing books and doing whatever I can do anywhere, apparently, as I said. So we just thought, shoot, let's just go there. So we did. So is this, Richard, the last Frank Bascom book? Yeah, I think so. I, I uh, the and, and not because I couldn't write another one. I mean, and maybe, in fact, I couldn't, and I'm just being um, a bloviator. But um, the last year of working on this book was was a was a tough year and, and tougher than other ending books have yes. been. Uh, the editing process was difficult. You have to go through these ridiculous uh, sensitivity edits in which they go through and try to prune out all the words that somebody might take offense at, which is humiliating and, and not pleasant. And oh, then, what then, is this a new thing? It's a new thing to me. Maybe it doesn't happen in New Zealand, but it certainly happens in America. Though it's happening less now. When 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 we did the sensitivity edit to my book, which which was a year, is that and what they call it—a sensitivity edit? Yeah, the law. The, the the publishers go through and they try to try to basically force you to take words out and take scenes out and take events out that they think might offend someone, and you have to just you have to fight them. And, um, <laughs> you had to fight them, or you have yeah. to give in. Which you obviously um, fought them. Did they well, want well, you, what, you, what did they well, want you to you take is, out? Um, would you like me to tell you something they wanted me to take out? Yes, I would. Frank's driving down the street. It's in the middle of it's in the middle of February in Minnesota. It's cold, freezing, and in the car he and Paul are driving back to their house, and they pass on the street uh, a sightless man, a blind man, walking down the street. And he's got his he's got his cane and he's got his little Ray Charles dark glasses on. And Frank says, and we passed this is Frank talking, and we passed the neighborhood blind man tapping his way along the sidewalk, hoping not to fall off the edge of the earth. And the editor said, Oh, you have to take that out, she said, because it might persuade someone who is sightless that they are impaired. I said, Darling. <laughs> No, he... They're blind. I said, nothing against them, but if they're not impaired and you're blind, you're impaired. That's just, that's just how it is. So I didn't take that out. I won that battle. What you have to kind of do is sort of leave some egregious things in so you can, when you're asked to take them out, take them out harmlessly. Yeah. And so you get to leave the things in that you want to leave in. Uh -huh. um, do you <laughs> self-censor? That's a really good question. Um, 
Probably a little bit, yeah. Probably a little bit, yeah. I mean, the stuff in the sports writer that probably would not pass today. Uh, I, I don't know exactly what those things are, but you're probably right because it's, gee, it's almost 40 years ago. Yeah. And 40 years ago was certainly a different landscape, cultural landscape, um, landscape in, of human sensitivity than was true uh, now, than is true now. Yeah. yeah. So I'm sure it's true. I'm sure that's true, yeah. Can I ask you, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that I wish to know more about transient global amnesia. Transient global amnesia, yeah. Well, um, yeah, uh, Frank ex experiences it, and I, I just stuck it in the book because it was opposite to his age group, his, and it's, since it's opposite to mine. Have you had, suffered from it? I, I did have one episode, yes. And I may have had another one, but I don't... Please I don't, don't remember. remember. Huh. I don't remember. Um, so um, what happened? Just, um, what happened to me was I, I was... It was the night before the garbage was going to be picked up the next morning. We were living in Maine. And I, and I said to Christina, I said, oh, I have to take the garbage out to the road to be picked up, the rubbish. And so I went out to the little den where we kept them garbage and lo and behold somebody had already taken it out and there was only her and me there and I went back in the house and I said sweetheart I said um did you take the garbage out she said oh no you did about 20 minutes ago and I thought well Jesus I took it out why don't I remember that you're hearing the sirens I apologize for that <laughs> um, uh, and so what I realized was that I had taken it out the garbage and had no recollection of it whatsoever. Exactly as happened to Frank. Yes, I just put it in there because I, cause I thought, you know, the truth of what I thought, Kim, was I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was just simply hilarious that I would be poking around there with the garbage, wanting to take it out and finding that I'd already taken it out and had no memory of it. I mean, you know, I could either think it was hilarious or I could think it was tragic and I was just not up to tragic. Yeah, it's interesting. When I looked it up, it said it's the temporary but almost total destruction of short-term memory. And under yeah. treatment, it said reassurance. <laughs> well, my, my, my doctor's at the Mayo Clinic, because that's where I go, just like Frank, for whenever anything seems really needing attention. They said, you know, you only really have one of these per lifetime. Don't worry about it. If you've had one, you're not going to have another one. Is that right? And so that, that, that made me feel reassured. So reassurance worked for me. How did you get over the dyslexia that you had as a kid? Not altogether, no. No. You didn't? I, I, not altogether, no. I, um, mostly, mostly. Uh, I still can't, when I'm editing something, I still can't see certain words on the page. Um, I sometimes habitually leave the word not out of a sentence that I'm typing or writing. So that, um, which can be, as you can imagine, very problematical if the word not is left, left out of sentences where it belongs. So, um, so that, that still happens to me. I still read very slowly. I just can't make myself read more quickly than I could if I were reading uh, aloud. Um, but it's it's not been a hazard 
for me. Uh, I figured out how to deal with it. And, and it, it comes with uh, a whole bunch of benefits to somebody who wants to be a novelist. I mean, I read slowly, so I, I am aware of qualities in language that I wouldn't be aware of otherwise. I hear sentences better. I, I see how words look on the page. I count syllables. I hear sounds. So there's a, there's a, there's a good side to it. And it should be said parenthetically is that I'm not severely dyslexic. I'm mildly dyslexic. All right. And the answer to my question of, I was just thinking backwards, how you know so much about real estate is presumably because you've moved around so much. Frank ends exactly up being a real estate agent, right? That's exactly right. I've been in more realtors' cars than you can imagine. Really? Looking at rental, rental houses, looking at houses to buy. I just, I just, you know, I just have an appetite for looking at how other people live. You know, look, going in their houses and seeing what their furniture looks like, seeing how it smells, seeing how the light is. Just, just looking at other people's houses right. that are for sale. Even if I'm not, a, even if I'm not a buyer, I do it. I do. There is um, reference to politics and particularly Independence Day, um, I think, and also the lay of the land, the interregnum between the election and George W. Bush becoming president. That was set in 2000. I uh, so right. a quick question about politics. I think you've said. You do not believe that Donald Trump can be president of the United States again. Are you still convinced of that fact? No, I'm not. I'm not. What's changed your mind? Uh, Well, uh, his uh, persistence, the almost uh, uh, Delphic nihilism of the Republican Party, um, and the... Uh, unfortunate fact that uh, President Biden is showing his age a lot more than Donald Trump is showing his age. And there, there's just a lot of dissatisfaction among Democrats about having to vote for Biden at all, although Biden has been a quite good president as far as I'm concerned. But, um, you know, this is all elections in the United States are, are all about appearances. Uh, they're all about affect. And and these days, I mean, even though he's a he, He's a moron and a criminal. Um, those nihilists are winning, I think, right now. I mean, talking about you know the eighth of the eighth of September. It's, it, it doesn't it doesn't look as promising as I thought it would be looking now. I mean, it's a long time away, and so many things can happen, and um, you know, lightning can strike. <laughs> but I don't think that Mr. Biden is going to get out of the way. Uh, I think he he's as big an egotist as, as any other politician is. So he wants to be president. He thinks he can be the better president. And I'm sure he can be if he can just get reelected. The fact of Trump really seems to have marked a watershed between the world you were describing in your books through the life of Frank Bascom and the future. Yeah. Well, he has he has been that kind of odd watershed. And what we're all struggling to do is to make the world that we thought we understood before Trump came along be the world we have to look forward to. So if no more Frank Bascom novels, that doesn't mean no more writing for you, does it? I don't think so. I don't no, think so. If a, if, a, if a good idea came along for me, I would certainly jump on it. I would I would really hope it wasn't going to be a hundred thousand words. I'd be much happier if it was about seventy thousand words. But I know I'm I'm available. I you know, I'm. 
available I, available for hire I, I if jump, anybody wants I jump, I jump on it. Yeah. yeah. Very yeah. nice to talk to you, Richard. Thank you. Congratulations. Yeah, thank on you Beamer. so much. Great pleasure. Richard Ford, who's written his last Frank Bascom novel. It's called Be Mine. It's called Be Mine because it's set around Valentine's Day.